Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? It's going really well. Yeah? Yeah. This is pretty exciting because you haven't done an episode yourself for a little while. Yeah, I think Mark Twitchell was the last one, which yeah. seems like forever ago. Ages ago. Yes. And my last book that I covered was Devil in the White City. Yeah. That which, feels like a year ago. It feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> a whole other era. Yeah. So this will be fun. So I'm very excited because I just get to sit back and not really relax because I know this is going to be a terrible story, but I'm going to yeah. try to enjoy it anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And learn, a th- learn some things, hopefully. Yeah, I think so. I haven't um, dove into this case at all. Um, I chose not to because I just feel like going into it blind because I think that's fun. Beautiful. I love it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, just wanted to shout out our Fluff and Stuff answer from our last episode. And our question was, which dark tourism location do you want to visit? And Kate on Instagram answered, the Winchester House. And if anybody knows about the Winchester House, it's terrifying and so creepy. And I definitely want to go, but also I'm terrified to go because, Mm -hmm. you know, reoccurring nightmares and whatnot. (laughs) Yeah, you kind of have a a history with that kind of house. Yeah, it's very strange. I've had, well, Stephen King made a mini series called Rose Red based on the Winchester House. And I'd had these reoccurring nightmares about this crazy-ass house forever. And then I wound up watching Rose Red, and I was like, holy shit, that's the house that I was dreaming about. So, yeah, we're a little afraid of the Winchester house and what it would hold for me, but... Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, any haunted mansion does not sound the best to me. I don't know. I like, when I get home, I check every single room. I actually (laughs) have my dog trained to go in and check each room for me. So yes. he goes to the living room, he goes to each bedroom, and I just say, check, 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 and he'll go into each one for me because that's how paranoid I am. So I could not imagine being in a mansion because then I, I wouldn't be able to check all the corners and all the things and look no, behind the doors. And, and like that mansion has like rooms that aren't even rooms anymore. They've been walled off and like... Yeah. No bueno. <laughs> so I love that answer. Love yes. that answer. It was Thank amazing. You. Thank you, Cade. Um, we just literally found out that the reason why we didn't get more responses was our question didn't post to Facebook. So that's where we get a lot of our answers from. <laughs> so, hey, if you want to answer a question and you didn't get a chance to, what dark tourism location do you want to visit? Feel free to send them in still. Absolutely. We love to hear them. Yeah. And so we're doing a very special mini not many episodes today. Yeah, we, we told everybody we're not doing many episodes anymore. They're going to be different. But then we're like, mm, but this is a special. But this one. Yes, this is a special mini episode. I was already working on this one when we decided we weren't doing minis anymore. So yes. unless you've been living under a rock, you know that the last case slash books we covered was the Waco siege. So I felt it was only fitting and important that we cover a case that was a result of one man's insane feelings about the siege and the Ruby Ridge incident. It's also one of those cases that's been a part of my true crime obsession origins. I was nine when this happened. I've always known about this case, but never in this much detail. Today, we are diving into the Oklahoma City bombing. 
Oof. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Get yeah. ready. Buckle up. Hold on to everything. Especially your butts. Especially your butts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michelle, are you ready for this? No, but well, yes. too bad. <laughs> Friends, grab your glasses. Get cozy. Let's talk about murder. Tink. Tink. <laughs> Sorry, that was unconventional, but I feel like I gotta push you off the ledge. <laughs> yeah, we're diving in. Mm-hmm. All right. So on April 19th, 1995, two years to the day since the catastrophic fire at Mount Carmel in Waco, Texas, a man named Timothy McVeigh drove a rider rental truck that contained a homemade bomb to the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. At 8.57 a.m., McVeigh lit the five-minute fuse. Three minutes later, he lit the two-minute fuse. He was still a block away from the federal building. He parked the truck in front of the building, left the vehicle, locked the door, and headed to his getaway vehicle that was parked a few blocks away, intentionally dropping the keys to the rental truck on the way. At 9.02 a.m., the rider rental truck that contained over 4,800 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, nitromethane, and diesel fuel exploded in front of the north end of the federal building. Quote from Wikipedia, one third of the building was destroyed and created a 30-foot-wide, 8-foot-deep crater on the street next to the building. The blast destroyed or damaged 324 buildings within a four-block radius and shattered glass in 258 nearby buildings. The broken glass alone accounted for 5% of the death total and 69% of the injuries outside of the Mira Federal Building. The blast destroyed or burned 86 cars around the site. The effects of the blast were equivalent to 5,000 pounds of TNT and could be heard and felt up to 89 kilometers away. The collapse of the building took approximately seven seconds. Wow. Paints a picture, hey? Sure does. The Alfred P. Mura Federal Building housed the regional offices for the Social Security Administration, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, the United States Secret Service, the Department of Veterans Affairs Vocational Rehabilitation Counseling Center, the Drug Enforcement Administration, also known as the DEA, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF, as well as recruiting offices for the U.S. military. On any given day, there was over 500 employees in the building, and there was a daycare center in the building as well. Ugh. The morning of the attack, there was approximately 646 people inside the building when the bomb went off. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, activated 11 of its urban search and rescue task forces, consisting of 665 rescue workers who assisted in rescue and recovery actions. By the end of the first day, 14 adults and six children were confirmed dead and over 100 injured. The toll eventually reached 168 confirmed dead. Wow. Wow. Sorry, don't have any other words. Just wow. It's, it's going to get rough. Yeah. Um, it already is rough, but it's going to get worse because I'm going to name the victims. And I really just want to prepare you. It's, it's going to be hard. But I think it's important that the victims aren't just nameless. They lost their lives to a maniac and they deserve to be honored. Are you ready? I got my line. Here goes. I'm ready. So from the surrounding area, rescue worker Rebecca Needham Anderson was 37. 
from the Athenian building next door, Anita Christine Hightower, 27, and Catherine Elizabeth Ridley, 24. From the Oklahoma Water Resources Board building, Robert N. Chipman, 51, and Trudy Jean Rigney, 31. All of the rest of the victims were from inside the federal building. In the ninth floor, which has the DEA, Shelley D. Bland, 25, Carol June Fields, 48, Rona Lynn Kuhner Chafee, 35, Carrie Ann Lenz, and baby Michael James Lenz, the third. Carrie Ann was 26. Kenneth Glenn McCullough, 36. In the U.S. Secret Service Office, Cynthia L. Brown, 26. Donald Ray Leonard, 50. Mickey B. Marooney, 50. Linda G. McKinney, 47. Kathy Lynn Seidel, 39. Alan G. Witcher, 40. On the eighth floor, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, Ted L. Allen, 48. Peter R. Avalanosa, 56. David Neal Burkett, 47. Donald Earl Burns, Sr., 63. Kimberly K. Clark, 39. Susan Jane Farrell, 37. Dr. George Michael Howard, DVM, 45. Antonio C. Rays, 55. Lanny Lee David Scroggins, 46. Leora Lee Sells, 57. Jules A. Valdez, 51. David Jack Walker, 54. Michael D. Weaver, 54. Francis Ann Williams, 48. Clarence Eugene Wilson, Sr., 49. On the seventh floor, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, Diane E. Altos, 5. Andrea Vivette Blanton, 33. Kim R. Cousins, 33. Diana Lynn Day, 38. Castine Brooks Hearn Devereaux, 49. Judy J. Fisher, 45. Linda Louise Florence, 43. J. Colleen Giles, 59. Thomas Eugene Hodges, Jr. Don't have any, an age for him. Anne Cranborg, 57. Teresa Lee Taylor Lauderdale, 41. Mary Leisure Renty, 39. Betsy J. McGonnell, 47. Patricia Ann Nix, 47. Terry Smith Reese, 41. John Thomas Stewart, 51. John Carl Van Est III, 67. Joanne Wittenberg, 35. On the sixth floor, the U.S. Marine Corps Recruiting Office, Sergeant Benjamin Lorenzo Davis, USMC, 29. Captain Randolph A. Guzman, USMC, 28. Fifth floor, U.S. Department of Agriculture, Olin Burl Bloomer, 61. James E. Bowles, 50. Dr. Margaret L. Clark, 42. Richard Cummins, 55. Doris Higginbottom, 44. Carol Sue Khalil, 50. Rita Bender Long, 60. U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, Paul Gregory Broxterman, 42. And from the U.S. Customs Office, Paul D. Ice, 42, Claude Arthur Medris, SSA, 41. On the fourth floor, U.S. Department of Transportation and Federal Highway, Lucio Elman, Jr., 33, Mark Allen Bolte, 28, Michael Carrillo, 44, Larry James Jones, 46, James K. Martin, 34, Renata Ann Newberry Woodbridge, don't have an age for her, Jerry Lee Parker was 45, Michelle A. Reeder, 33, Rick L. Tomlin, 46, 
Johnny Allen Wade, 42. John A. Youngblood, 52. From the U.S. Army Recruiting Battalion, Sergeant First Class Lola Bolden, U.S. Army, 40. Karen Gist Carr, 32. Peggy Louise Holland, 37. John C. Moss III, 50. Victoria L. Son, 36. Dolores D. Stratton, 51. Kayla Marie Titsworth, three and a half. Wanda Lee Watkins, 49. Third floor, Defense Security Service. Harley Richard Cottingham, 46. Peter L. DeMaster, 44. Norma Jean Johnson, 62. Larry L. Turner, 42. Robert G. Westbury, 57. Federal Employees Credit Union, Woodrow Clifford Brady, 41. Kimberly Ruth Burgess, 29. Kathy A. Finley, 44. Jamie Genzer, 32. Sheila R. Giver Driver was 28. And her baby, Gregory N. Driver II. Linda Colleen Housley, 53. Robin Ann Huff, 37. And baby Amber Denise Huff. Christy Yolanda Jenkins, 32. Alvin J. Justice, 54. Valerie Joe Kolesh, 33. Kathy Kegel Lenin, 47. Claudette Meek, 43. Frankie Ann Merrill, 23. Jill Diane Randolph, 27. Claudine Ritter, 48. Christy Roses, 22. Sonia Lynn Sanders, 27. Kara Howell Shepard, 27. Victoria Jeanette Texter, 37. Virginia M. Thompson, 56. Treja Joe Wharton, 28. On the second floor, the America's Kids Child Development Center. Miss Bailey Alman was one. Danielle Nicole Bell was 15 months. Zachary Taylor Chavez was three. Dana Leanne Cooper was 24. Anthony Christopher Cooper II was two. Antonio and Sarah Cooper Jr. was six months. Aaron M. Coverdale was five and a half. Elijah S. Coverdale was two and a half. J.C. Ray Coyne was 14 months. Brenda Faye Daniels was 42. Taylor Centauri Eves was eight months. Tevin DeAndre Garrett, 16 months. Kevin Gotzel, the second, six months. Wanda Lee Howell was 34. Blake Ryan Kennedy was one and a half. Dominique Revey London was two. Chase Dalton Smith was three. Colton Wade Smith was two. And there was a visitor to the daycare center. Scott D. Williams was 24. On the first floor, the Social Security Administration, Teresa Antoinette Alexander, 33, Richard A. Allen, 46, Pamela Cleveland Argo, 36, Sandra G. Avery, 34, Calvin Battle, 62, Piola Battle, 56, Oleta C. Biddy, no age for her, Cassandra K. Booker, 25, Carol Louise Bowers, 53. Peach Lynn Bradley, 3. Gabrielle D.L. Bruce, 3 months. Catherine Louise Cregan, 60. Ashley Megan Eccles, 4. Don Fritzel, 64. Mary Ann Fritzler, 57. Laura Jane Garrison, 61. Margaret Betterton Goodson, 54. Ethel L. Griffin, 55. Cheryl E. Hammond, 44. Ronald Vernon Harding, Sr., 55. Thomas Lynn Hawthorne, Sr., 52. Dr. Charles E. Hurlbert, 73. 
Jean Nutting Hurlbert, 67, Raymond Johnson, 59, Lakesha Rich, 21, Aurelia Donna Luster, 43, Robert Lee Luster Jr., 45, Reverend Gilbert X. Martinez, 35, Cartney J. McRaven, 19, Derwin W. Miller, 27, Eula Lee Mitchell, 64, Emilio Tapia, 50, Charlotte Andrea Lewis Thomas, 43, Michael George Thompson, 47, LaRue A. Trainer, 55, Luther H. Trainer, 61, Robert N. Walker Jr., 52, Julie Marie Welch, 23, W. Stevens Williams, 42, Sharon Louise Wood Chestnut, 47, General Services Administration, Stephen Douglas Curry, 44, Michael L. Laudenslager, 48. Wow. Wow. Well, well done. I know that's <laughs> so difficult to do. Yes. It's not easy, especially when you're reading ages like six months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. 163 people were from inside the building, including three unborn babies and 19 children, and five people from the surrounding areas died from the blast. My heart just hurts reading this. It's hard to even comprehend. And I think that's because our brains don't actually want to comprehend that. No, we're not supposed to comprehend that, I don't think. Yeah, it's not supposed to happen in the first place. Yeah. There was more than 680 people injured, with the majority of injuries being severe burns, bone fractures, and abrasions. These, of course, are just the physical injuries. The amount of mental health problems that came as a result of the trauma of the explosion is uncountable. McVeigh was later quoted saying, I didn't define the rules of engagement in this conflict. The rules, if not written down, are defined by the aggressor. It was brutal. No holds barred. Women and kids were killed at Waco and Ruby Ridge. You put back in the government's faces exactly what they are given out. And also, I wanted the government to hurt like the people of Waco and Ruby Ridge had. Oh, I mean, you know how much I feel for the people at Waco and Ruby Ridge, but that is so wrong. I know. And who gives him the right to seek out vigilante justice against the government? And against all the innocent people there. Yeah. So who was this psycho who took it upon himself to serve vigilante justice to the United States government. The FBI started trying to put the pieces together of the who's and why's immediately. They, of course, at first, didn't know who was at fault. All they knew was it was the deadliest act of terrorism to happen in United States history, being surpassed, of course, by 9-11 in 2001, and it remains to this day being the biggest and deadliest act of domestic terrorism to take place on the United States soil. The FBI theorized that it could have been international terrorists, a drug cartel with a vengeance towards the DEA, or anti-government radicals attempting to start a rebellion against the federal government. I can't even imagine trying to piece this together. Like, where would you even start? It would be so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. and, and I know that we've talked a fair amount of shit about the FBI in the previous episodes, but man, I got to give it to them because they worked quickly and they pieced it all together. Yeah. While rescue workers were busy pulling people out of the rubble, the FBI was able to locate the axle of the truck that was carrying the explosives and the remnants of its license plate. 
Off the axle, they were able to locate the VIN, the vehicle identification number of the truck. With this plus the license plate, they were able to track the truck back to a specific rider rental agency in Junction City, Kansas. Meanwhile, shortly after the bombing, a man was pulled over on the Interstate 35 near Noble County, Oklahoma. And you're gonna love this part. Oh, I, I, can, I already have an image of why, but go ahead. <laughs> Oklahoma State Trooper Charlie Hanger pulled over a yellow 1997 Mercury Marquis without a license plate. This how, man was Timothy McVeigh. Sorry, how many times do I have to tell you people? <laughs> Just obey the law. <laughs> Just obey the law, right? Just obey the law in order to not get caught for, you know, breaking the law, obviously. Right? <laughs> right? So yes, it was Timothy McVeigh that got pulled over. He was then arrested after the officer found a concealed weapon in the car. This was less than 90 minutes after the explosion went off. Okay. <laughs> yep. Props. Props to the FBI. Yeah. Once he was booked into the Noble County Jail, the trooper found a business card in his car that had been concealed by McVeigh when he was arrested. The card was for a Wisconsin military surplus store, and on the back of the card was written, TNT at $5 a stick. Need more. Oh, what? Right? <laughs> Red flag. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> yeah. The FBI, though, at this point, had never heard of McVeigh, and they went to the Ryder rental in Kansas. The owner, Eldon Elliott, helped investigators by creating a sketch of the man who rented the truck. An employee at the Dreamland Motel remembered a weird scenario with a man who was driving a yellow Ryder truck, who checked in using one name, but he, when he signed for the room, he used a different name. This happens often if people use fake names or aliases. If they're distracted while signing, their brain automatically signs their actual name. The signed name was Timothy McVeigh. This, <laughs> I'm just sketch. enjoying how stupid this guy is. I know. <laughs> For as much work as he put into this, he's pretty dumb. The sketch also looked a lot like McVeigh. After his hearing for the gun charges on April 21st, 1995, but before his release, federal agents took him into custody as the prime suspect in the bombing. McVeigh immediately refused to talk to investigators and lawyered up. He was transferred into custody to Oklahoma City while the investigation progressed. A search warrant was issued for McVeigh's father's house, and their phone lines were tapped. The information gained from this, plus the fake address McVeigh had used at the time of his booking for the weapons charge, led investigators to look for Terry and James Nichols. When Terry learned that the police were looking for him, he turned himself in. Upon searching his home, the FBI found plenty of incriminating evidence. Among the items retrieved from Terry's house were ammonium nitrate, blasting caps, books on bomb making. Seriously, who's publishing these? There always seems to be a lot of books about how to do very illegal things. And it's like, who, who writes who, them? And, who, what and publisher who's the and publishing company behind that, right? Exactly. I just would love to picture the editor just like, you know, going through like, no, oh, you, you could use better grammar here. And, and it's just like, are you reading the content? <laughs> right? Really? Um, a copy of Hunter, a 1989 novel by William Luther Pierce, the founder and chairman of the National Alliance, a white supremacist political organization founded in 1974. And probably the biggest piece of evidence they found in his house was a hand-drawn map 
of downtown Oklahoma City with the spot McVeigh planned to park and where his getaway car were parked were marked. <laughs> he I wish you guys could have just seen Tara's face. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Making it too easy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Don't get me it's wrong. A- but it's like, yeah, meatball. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Terry Nichols was interrogated for nine hours, then was booked into federal custody while he waited for his trial. James Nichols, Terry's brother, was arrested four days later and was held for 32 days, but was ultimately released due to lack of evidence. McVeigh's sister was also accused of illegally mailing him bullets but she was granted immunity in exchange for testifying against her brother. So let's back up here a bit and go into McVeigh and Nichols' history and motive for the attack. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols met in 1988 at Fort Benning drilling basic training for the U.S. Army. McVeigh served in the Persian Gulf War and was a decorated soldier. He took an early discharge in 1991 after failing to qualify for the Special Forces program. McVeigh also met a man named Michael Fortier, who comes into play later. They were roommates in the army. The three men bonded over their interest in survivalism and became friends. Later on, the three shared a mutual anger over the federal government's mishandling of the Ruby Ridge standoff in 1992 and the Waco siege in 1993. McVeigh had even visited the Waco site during the standoff and again after it was all over. And when I say he visited the site during, I don't think he actually got anywhere near the action, but he was behind a barricade with the rest of the civilians who wanted to be close, like family members of those inside the compound. After his visits to Waco, he decided he needed to take a stand and protest the actions of the United States government in what he believed to be efforts to restrict the Second Amendment rights of private citizens, which, of course, is the right to keep and bear arms. Initially, he had contemplated assassinating Attorney General Janet Reno. Lon Harucci, who was the FBI HRT sniper who was responsible for the death of Vicki Weaver at Ruby Ridge, and who McVeigh believed to be one of the original shooters to open fire on the Waco compound, as well as other significant officials in those attacks. But McVeigh decided he would rather destroy a federal building full of innocent victims, as he believed his message would be more powerful if more people were killed in the attack. He went on to choose the Mira Federal Building because it housed 14 federal agencies, and he expected the glass front to shatter under the impact of the blast, and he believed that the open space around the building would provide better photo opportunities for propaganda purposes. And he planned the attack to land on the second anniversary of the Waco siege, which was also the anniversary of the start of the American Revolutionary War. This fucking guy yeah i'm i i'm so not happy with this fucking guy (laughs) the fact that he chose the building for good photo opportunities for propaganda right right (laughs) oh my god Mm -hmm. he's terrible oh yeah terrible so in the fall of 1994 mcveigh and nichols started the process of building the bomb They purchased or stole the bomb materials and stored them in rented sheds. On September 30th, 1994, Nichols bought 40 50-pound bags of ammonium nitrate fertilizer from a mid-Kansas co-op in McPherson, Kansas, which would be enough to fertilize 12.5 acres of farmland at a rate of 160 pounds of nitrogen per acre. And this is the normal amount to purchase for corn, so no one would have questioned the purchase. 
Yeah. I was thinking that 12 and a half acres, that is like nothing. It's nothing. And so it's like, I'm fertilizing my corn grub. Yeah. yeah. I'm a farmer. Don't look at me. Yeah. Right. Nichols bought an additional 50 pound bag on October 8th, 1994. McVeigh had remained close with Michael Fortier and his family after being discharged from the army. And in October of 1994, he revealed to Michael and his wife, Lori, the plans for his bomb and the attack. McVeigh asked Michael to assist with the bombing, but Michael refused to take part. On April 14, 1995, McVeigh rented his room at the Dreamland Motel, and the next day he rented the Ryder rental truck. On April 16, 1995, McVeigh and Nichols drove to Oklahoma City and planted the Mercury Marquee getaway car. They parked the car several blocks away from the Federal Building. McVeigh removed the license plate and left a note covering the vehicle's VIN plate that read, Not abandoned. Please do not tow. Will come move by April 23rd. Needs battery and cable. As if that worked. Yeah. But I guess in all his plans, he forgot that tiny detail of putting the plate back on the car before he left. Mm-hmm. On April 17th and 18th, the two men began building their bomb. They had 13 barrels assembled in a J shape in the back of the rider truck on boards nailed to the floor of the truck. They mixed the chemicals using plastic buckets and a bathroom scale. McVeigh added a dual-fuse ignition system accessible from the driver's seat. They were time-delayed fuses, so he had time to light the fuses, dump the truck, and get the fuck out of there. He had added more explosives to the driver's side of the cargo bay, which he could ignite at close range with his Glock 21 pistol, in the event that the primary fuse failed. If he needed to use this route, he would have killed himself in the process. Mm-hmm. The Glock, of course, was the concealed weapon that he had on himself when he was pulled over for the lack of license plate. Good. <laughs> the bomb cost around $5,000 to make. You can't say he wasn't committed to his cause. But I can think of a lot better things to spend $5,000 on. Just saying. Uh, yeah, I'd rather burn my money. <laughs> just light, yeah, it, on just light it on fire. <laughs> that would be a better use of $5,000. <laughs> yeah. After the bomb was assembled and the getaway vehicle planted, the two men parted ways, with Nichols going home and McVeigh and the rider truck headed back to the Dreamland Motel, ready for the events of the next morning. Michael and Lori Fortier were found to be accomplices for their knowledge of the planning and bombing. Michael also had helped McVeigh to scout the Mira Federal Building, and Lori helped to create the fake driver's license that McVeigh used at the rental company and at the motel. Michael agreed to testify against McVeigh in exchange for a reduced sentence and immunity for his wife. Sorry, I have a tickle in my throat. <laughs> <coughs> Coronavirus. <laughs> Is that you? My, 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 my corona. Sorry. Michael agreed to testify against McVeigh in exchange for a reduced sentence and immunity for his wife. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison and fined $75,000 for failing to warn authorities of the attack. He was released into the Witness Protection Program and given a new identity after eight and a half years served due to good behavior. Oh, Witness Identity Program. That's just something so fascinating to me. I know. I'm like, I just, I want to know more, but you can't. I know. But they're invisible. That's, that's the, the point. point. But I want to know more. <laughs> What if, like, after the person died, you could, like, release the details? Like, tell us, what's the crazy story that you came up for them, you know? Right? Like, they should have, like, they should write a book. 
it'd be a great book. Maybe they just send all of the witness protection people to Florida and that's where we get all the crazy <gasps> Florida man stories. Wow. You're right. <laughs> Probably. What kind of instructions do they give? <laughs> like, so you're Florida man number 64. Um, you have to go find a crocodile immediately <laughs> and make sure you're not and wearing you a shirt. Make it your wife. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, really? Like, do I have to? They're like, yeah, well, that's, that's the law. That's what it says. I'm sorry. I don't that's make the rules. Yep. We just pick random uh, nouns out of a hat and that's how we make your life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, totally makes sense. What yeah. a fun world that would be. <laughs> I know. I feel like those situations, even if that's how they did pick the witness program, it wouldn't even come up with the crazy things that happen in Florida. No, you're probably it, right. It wouldn't even get that crazy. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Terry Nichols stood trial twice. First, he was tried by the federal government. He was acquitted of actually detonating the bomb, but convicted of conspiracy with Timothy McVeigh to build a weapon of mass destruction and eight counts of involuntary manslaughter of federal law enforcement personnel. He was acquitted of the charges of first-degree murder as he was at home in Kansas when the bomb was detonated. He was found guilty and sentenced on June 4, 1998, to life without parole. Then, in 2000, the state of Oklahoma sought a death penalty conviction for 161 counts of first-degree murder, 160 non-federal agents and one fetus. Damn, that's a lot of counts of first-degree murder. That is a lot. Don't think I've ever seen that before. (laughs) On May 26, 2004, the jury found him guilty of all charges, but deadlocked on the death sentence. Presiding Judge Stephen W. Taylor ruled a sentence of 161 consecutive life terms with no possibility of parole. It took nine years for his trials and sentencing to be complete. Nichols was called an enemy of the Constitution, and he remained emotionless throughout his trials. He is currently serving out his sentence at ADX Florence, a super maximum security prison outside of Florence, Colorado. He is in an area of the prison that has been coined Bomber's Row, as he is incarcerated with the likes of Ted Kaczynski, who is better known as the Unabomber, Eric Rudolph, the Olympic Park Bomber, and others. Interesting. Neat, right? I mean, I guess they would have lots of chat about. Yeah. Why don't you put them all together? I know. (laughs) It's not a good thing, though. I don't want them to enjoy their time there. (laughs) No. Timothy McVeigh's federal trial began on April 24, 1997. The prosecution spoke of his hatred for the government and his desire to take action against it, presenting 137 witnesses to confirm. McVeigh wanted his defense team to present a necessity defense, which would have argued that he was in imminent danger from the government but his lawyers refused. They instead argued that his bombing of the Mira building was a justifiable response to what McVeigh believed were the crimes of the U.S. government at Waco, Texas, two years prior. His lawyers even showed the jury the controversial video, Waco, the Big Lie. The jury deliberated for 23 hours, and on June 2nd, 1997, McVeigh was found guilty of eight counts of first-degree murder of federal agents, conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, using a weapon of mass destruction, and destruction of a federal building. Although 168 people were killed in the blast, the federal government could only charge him for the deaths of the eight federal officers that were on duty that day. The other 160 charges of murder fell under the jurisdiction of the state of Oklahoma, 
which the state chose not to pursue as the federal court sentenced him to death. McVeigh was initially incarcerated on Bombers Row with Terry Nichols, but was moved to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, moved by the Federal Bureau of Prisons to the Federal Death Row at USP in Terre Haute, Indiana in 1999 after several denied appeals. Once moved to death row, he dropped all remaining appeals as he said he would rather die than spend the rest of his life in prison. The night before his execution, he invited conductor David Woodard to perform Requiem Mass Music. The conductor acknowledged McVeigh's horrible deed but consented to provide him comfort. McVeigh also spoke with the Catholic chaplain and had his last meal of two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream. He was executed by lethal injection at 7.14 a.m. on June 11, 2001. Family members of the deceased who were there to witness the execution said he had a blank, expressionless stare and a look of defiance. Timothy McVeigh was the first federal prisoner to be executed since 1963. On November 21, 1997, President Bill Clinton had created a special legislation to bar McVeigh and other veterans convicted of capital crimes from being buried in any military cemetery. McVeigh's body was cremated and his ashes were given to his lawyer and they were taken to an undisclosed location. Two things. Yeah. <laughs> really stuck out. How, I just don't know how any lawyer can try to say that that was justifiable. How could his right? defense actually make those words come out of their mouth. Just Could you saying. imagine being their defense, his defense lawyers? Like, no. I, mm. They know he's not a good person. They know he did it on purpose. They know he had all of the ill intent in the world. I mean, yeah, you got to make how some do, argument, but come on. Like, how do you sleep at night? Exactly. And then my other comment would be about the death penalty, which... I am for the death penalty in certain situations, and I know that's a controversial mm -hmm. thing, and a lot of people are against it, mm -hmm. but I don't like when <laughs> people like this get the death penalty because that's what he wanted. He would rather die yeah. than rot in jail. So then in these circumstances, I'd rather him rot in jail. <laughs> yeah, except it's, I don't think that anybody wanted their tax dollars feeding I him. I know. Right? It's such a, it's a right? conflict because that's what I was just going to say too. Nobody wants to pay for him to be there, but I also don't want to give him any sort of satisfaction whatsoever of just being no. taken out and just, okay, you're gone yeah. now, so you don't have this to suffer anymore. It's just, this it's done. Bad. So yeah. it, it's a really, I mean, I, I understand why it's a controversial thing because it's hard to find it's a balance. It's a really gray area for me, yeah. for sure. But Absolutely. But uh, yeah. yeah, just just don't like giving them what they want sometimes. I'm just going to talk a little bit about what happened after the bombing and the memorial that's there now. The bomb went off at 9.02 and 9.11 was immediately <laughs> flooded with calls. They received over 1,800 calls. Emergency service and civilians started helping victims immediately. Oklahoma City Police, the Air Force, the National Guard, the Red Cross, and even several cast and crew members from the movie Twister that was being shot nearby all pitched in to help with the rescue efforts. I'm sorry. I just want to say I love Twister. That is insane. I know. I knew you were going to love that. Oh, my God. I love, I love the disaster movies. They're, you know, you know. Yeah. I love oh, them. I know. So, I wow. know. Okay. That really, like, puts me in this. Okay. Yeah, I know. 
I put that in there just for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> a triage center was set up as well as a temporary morgue and all surrounding hospitals braced themselves for the incoming wounded. 210 patients were transported to the hospitals in the first two hours. Temporary silences were observed during the search and rescue so that sensitive listening devices capable of picking up human heartbeats could be used to locate survivors. Some victims had to have their limbs amputated without anesthetics in order to free them from the rubble. And the final survivor, a 15-year-old girl, was freed from the rubble at 7 p.m. that night. 12,000 people participated in relief and rescue operations. 24 canine units and out-of-state dogs were brought in to search for survivors and bodies. 100 to 350 short tons of rubble were removed from the site from April 24th to the 29th to aid in the, in the search process. All rescue and recovery efforts were concluded at 12.05 a.m. on May 5th, 16 days after the attack, with all but three bodies of victims recovered. There was constant media coverage throughout those 16 days, but the biggest focus was on the loss of the children from the daycare. One of the most famous pictures taken on the first day was actually taken by a bank employee and became a symbol of the attack. It showed an image of a firefighter, Chris Fields, standing in the rubble, cradling a one-year-old girl. The photo won the 1996 Pulitzer Prize, and let me tell you, it makes you feel things. The girl pictured was Bailey Allman. She died later in the hospital. That picture was on the cover of every newspaper and magazine for months. Bailey's mom, Arne Almond Cole, was quoted saying, it was very hard to go to stores because they're in the checkout aisle. It was always there. It was devastating. Everyone had seen my daughter dead. And that's all she became to them. She was a symbol. She was the girl in the fireman's arms. But she was a real person that got left behind. Oh. Ow. Oh, my heart. Just like went through my whole body. Just I know. hurt. I was like, if I can get through that part and not cry, I'll be okay. Yeah. Having, having some feels. Um, Aaron, her mom, and the firefighter from the photo, Chris Fields, became friends and shared a bond over the loss of that sweet baby girl. Oh. McVeigh had stated that he had been unaware about the daycare center and was quoted saying, it might have given me pause to switch targets. That's a large amount of collateral damage. Fuck you, McVeigh. He knew exactly what was in that building. He scouted it, and he parked right underneath the daycare. He intentionally killed children to make a bigger impression. He said before he targeted women and children so that they could feel the loss like they did at Waco. So, like you said, fuck you. Exactly. Oh, man. Fuming rage. <laughs> I told you. I told you. It's not good. Right. I have some feels about this dude. <laughs> yeah. At 7.02 a.m. on May 23rd, the Mira Federal Building was demolished and the final three bodies were recovered. Before his execution, McVeigh stated that he believed his bomb attack had a positive impact on government policy. He used the example of the peaceful resolution of the Montana Freeman standoff in 1996, which we learned in Stalling for Time had everything to do with the FBI negotiators being listened to and respected by the tactical leaders and nothing to do with whack job McVeigh. I was going to say that before you said it. <laughs> I was like, wait, no, we know. I was like, <laughs> but I was like, nope, shut up, Tara. It's not your time to talk. <laughs> Michelle's got this. <laughs> A national memorial was set up 
at the bombing site that includes a reflecting pool flanked by two large gates, one inscribed at the time 901, the other with 903, the pool representing the moment of the blast. There is also a field of bronze stone chairs, one for each person lost, arranged according to what floor of the building they were on. The chairs are meant to represent the empty chairs at the tables of the victims' families, with the children's chairs being smaller. There is also a survivor tree, part of the original landscaping that survived the bomb. Part of the foundation was left intact, and part of the chain link fence that had been put up around the site that collected over 800,000 personal items of commemoration, such as flowers, pictures, and teddy bears, in the time after the blast till the memorial went up, remains on the memorial site. There is a remembrance ceremony every year, as well as a marathon where runners can sponsor a victim of the bombing. This year, because of COVID-19, the memorial site was closed to the public on April 19th, 2020, and there was a pre-recorded TV broadcast to commemorate the 25th anniversary. 25 years, that's a big one. 25 years, yeah. yeah. My first exposure to this story was in a music video by Garth Brooks. I was 10 when he released his video for this, his song, The Change. The video shows him standing dressed, all in black, with video footage of the aftermath of the bombing playing behind him. I remember watching it and my dad coming into the living room and he just stared at the TV screen. I remember asking him what the footage was from and him telling me it was the Oklahoma City bombing. I, of course, being 10, asked more questions. Hello, future true crime podcast host. <laughs> he told me that an angry man decided to blow up a government building in Oklahoma City. I said something like, if it's a government building, why is there kids in there? And I swear, I will never forget how I felt when he said there was a daycare in there. Now that's the point that I'm going to get choked up. <laughs> huh. Okay. One more line. We can do it. You got We this. can do it. Huh. I hope that I have the same ability to answer my kids honestly and with as much grace when the world gets scary. Why did you find my pride on the podcast? <laughs> you got me. I'm sorry. I got me. Oh, damn. I was totally Oh, fine. Tara and I are sympathy criers? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. If one of us starts, the other one does. So, sorry, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Wow. Oh. So my sources for that were wikipedia.com, fbi.gov, history.com, cnn.com, nps.gov, dailymail.co.uk, and cbsnews.com. That's the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised that it got us. I was 100% expecting that, but it still yep. sucks. Yeah. 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 So, um besides the fact that I made you cry on the podcast, because um, I've made you cry many times before. Oh, uh, <laughs> always. <laughs> always. Which sounds really bad, but it's, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> no, we just feel each other's feels a lot. Um, yeah, um, I, I don't talk about my feels unless it's to Michelle, so she gets all of the feels. <laughs> yes, all of them. Yeah. How do you feel? Well, I was feeling intense rage and I was going to blow up, but then it turned into tears instead, <laughs> which is kind of surprising for how angry I was feeling, but then you got me. Yeah. yeah. I gotcha. 
I, I was going to put that part in the middle and then I was like, I'm going to end on it. That's a good ending. Well yeah. done. Um, yeah, I just, I want to say, cause I know you mentioned, we, <laughs> we talked a lot about the FBI in our Waco episodes mm-hmm. and I know that I was very, I am very angry still about that incident, but this is no way justifiable. That is not no. what I would hope for any human being. I want justice to be served, but in a court of law and not mm-hmm. being brought out on tiny humans. <laughs> now I'm going to cry again because <laughs> it's tiny humans and pregnant moms and 20 year olds and 19 year olds and seniors and, you know, everybody in between. There's something about when you read a list of victims and you include their ages, it just, mm-hmm. I don't know, it just makes you think of that individual so much more like, oh yeah. That's my age. That's a baby. That's a grandpa. That's that's my dad's age. That's my mom's age. You know, like yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it was rough. It was rough researching it. It was rough reliving it, reliving those memories. Mm-hmm. And seriously, go watch Garth Brooks' um, video for the change because I will. It's powerful. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit about the missing license plate. Mm-hmm. Do you think? And I have a theory. Like, I think that he, I think he left it off on purpose. I think he wanted to get caught. It's a very real possibility. I mean, he put so much time and effort and money into planning this. You would Mm -hmm. think that he would have everything down. So then he would. Like he had everything else so lined up. Like you had those chemicals figured out. You had a bomb set off, like down to the second, right? Like you had that planned out and you forgot to put that license plate back on. I'm sure he would have had a checklist, like need to do all these things for this to work perfectly. I'm sure he did. So yeah, it's a really interesting theory that. I think he got in his stupid yellow car and booked it. And he's like, I'm going to get as far as I can. Mm -hmm. And, but I think he had every intention of being caught because if he had gotten away with it, nobody would know him. Nobody would know his reasons for it. Exactly. 100%. It would be this big mystery. He planned everything down to the photo op. And he did Mm -hmm. it on the anniversary of Waco for a very specific reason. So he could not just let it go as a mystery. Yeah. Yeah, I think even if he wasn't caught 90 minutes after the blast, he would have like, he would have done something else to make himself be caught. He would have been one of those BTK, like sending in letters or whatever exactly. <laughs> floppy disk <laughs> you know right. something to be with. <laughs> yeah <laughs> no we can't track that <laughs> <laughs> but i 100 i i agree with you as i was writing it and just like the things that he said and you know he had an opinion about how the government got better after what he did and i was like you wanted exactly. to get caught you wanted the there was no oversight. And yeah, 100%. Regardless of how he got caught, he would have wanted that. That's, that's yeah. interesting. I didn't think about that, but I yeah. 100% agree with you. Yes. So that's, uh, that's my feels. Yeah. And I'm, I'm disappointed that I didn't know more about it. Like, literally all I knew was from the title of the case, like Oklahoma City bombing. Like, I never knew the details. Mm-hmm. So surprising. Because even mm-hmm. in Canada, I feel like we learn a whole bunch about U.S. history 
So yeah. why didn't we learn more about the biggest domestic terrorist attack ever, you know? Right? Like they teach 9-11 in schools, but yeah. they're not teaching the Oklahoma City bombing. Here, everybody Oklahoma- else except for ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And I think that in, in Oklahoma, I know they teach it and surrounding states, I believe that they do as well. But yeah. it's so huge that, I don't know, Yeah, the details should be more well known. They should be. Just like in Waco, but <laughs> for a different, I mean, it's different ends of the spectrum, but it's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for enlightening me on this. And I'm really glad that you did this little mini episode because it's 100% related to what we just talked about forever. And like I said, I thought it was, I thought it was important that that story got told again. Yeah, absolutely. And it's 25 years later and yeah, 25 year anniversary. And yeah, the FBI, they did a great job in this case it seems they did, like they, they did caught him. him right away and i couldn't like i just and, cannot imagine like having that bomb blow off and them going where do we start yeah we need to like, find the source like where did this bomb come from and they were able to find the vehicle under i can't even imagine how much wreckage much rubble oh my god oh my and, and glass then, and like how much like it was dangerous for them to get to it right like right and then also the fact that this huge devastating incident happened, but yet he still got pulled over for not having a license plate. I don't know. It's just, it's incredible that that all lined up and worked together. Yeah. Crazy story. Indeed. Yes. Well, um, do you want a little fluff and stuff at the end of this one? Yeah. Yeah, I think I do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So my fluff and stuff question is what would your last meal be if you were on death row? (laughs) (laughs) that's great I was really scared because there's nothing written down for a fluff so I'm like oh my god what is she gonna ask me um like literally is the moment you said that I was like oh poutine like right fries gravy and cheese my brain did not go very far after that Ooh, but now I'm thinking of the possibilities so my favorite (laughs) to eat in the whole world is Yorkshire pudding that my mom makes (gasps) It's what Ooh. I eat for my birthday every year. And basically, Ooh, that just made my mouth water. I know. <laughs> she makes the best gravy. So I'm thinking, Yorkshire pudding, usually I just fill it. It's like a boat of gravy. It's just like <laughs> getting gravy into my mouth. But I could make a Yorkshire pudding poutine, and it would be the best invention ever. I'm here for that. Yeah. Yeah. So how would we just do that even though we're not on death row? Totally. I'm thinking, why <laughs> have I never done this before? But yeah, that was the. The wildest thing I could come up with, but it's actually very practical and I'm definitely going to try it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of what mm. I, would, I would wash it down with, but um, I'm just like, all I can think is... I feel like you need to say wine. <laughs> I, I feel like I need to say wine. <laughs> I'll have a glass of wine and I'll have some espresso as well. Like, <laughs> I was going to get wine and crazy. Yeah. Cool. It's going to get real rowdy in here. <laughs> the combination of those two things. <laughs> So I'll be pretty love it. fired up before I get fired up, I guess. Yeah. Um, I love that. Yeah. I love it. I definitely also thought like, ooh, one last coffee, one last wine. Yeah. I mean, those are yeah. my two loves. Like it's pretty much all I consume for beverages, like water. What is that? I don't drink that. Yeah, you should probably drink some water. <laughs> it's good for your kidneys. 
<laughs> and I hear it's I, good for you. And I had a very bad kidney disease. <laughs> <laughs> Minor details. Anyways. It's fine. It's, it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. Tell me, what would your last meal be? Absolutely. 100% would be pierogies and sausage because it's my like all-time favorite food. But with a side of poutine because you have to die eating poutine. Yeah. Wine and coffee and then like some sort of like caramel cheesecake. I didn't even think about dessert. Oh, I never skip dessert. <laughs> cheesecake sounds fantastic. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm mm-hmm. so hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. I love it. I would, yeah. I would be 100% happy if that was my final meal as well. <laughs> Excellent. Yep. I don't see anything wrong with it. No, I don't either. I mean, I'd be happy with any food. <laughs> and I, ju- I just want to know how long I have to eat my last meal. Like, do I have to eat yeah. it in 15 minutes or do I get like four hours? Cause like bring right. it on. Oh, <laughs> then this is a whole ordeal. Like <laughs> you're about to see something special. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> watch this. I'm going to blow your minds. Right. I'm going to eat till it hurts. I love it. Yes. (laughs) I love to tell the story because I'm a pretty petite person. I mean, people like used to mistake me as a 12 year old when I'm like 20 something. Um, (laughs) But I, I used to eat so much. I don't as much anymore because I'm not playing as much soccer, but I used to eat so much. Like I would challenge boys at school, be like, I can eat more than you. And then we'd go to the buffet and then I'd eat like way more than them. But my mom would be so embarrassed to take me out to a buffet because I would have multiple plates on the table. And then I would just slide up and down on the bench and just like be shoveling food in my mouth. And my mom hated it. She would die of embarrassment, but just like, man, gotta eat. Why not do it all at once? Yeah. I have a fast metabolism. Watch me go. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. People are like, you're disgusting. And I'm like, I like it. Let me. Yeah. It's awesome. (laughs) Right. We have a strong appreciation for food, so it's all good. Yeah. (laughs) But now it's a problem because it's like, I'm not doing any exercise and my metabolism is slowing down, (laughs) but I'm still like, but I can't say no to food. I can't. No. Because I've never had to. (laughs) It's bad. You need to start playing soccer again. (laughs) Oh, yeah. For many reasons. Many reasons. Yes. (laughs) Excellent. Well, great question. Yeah. Well, make sure to answer our question and let us know what you think about the episode. And uh, if we made you cry, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) How many people can we get this episode? Oh, I'll get my mom for sure. Mm, For sure. Yeah. Sorry, mama. <laughs> Sorry, mama Phyllis. <laughs> uh, you can email us at murdermerlo at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at Murder Merlot Podcast, Facebook at Murder Merlot Podcast, and Twitter at Murder on Merlot One. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed, and if you don't, you're dead to me. And remember, we are reading Labyrinth by Randall Sullivan, which is, of course, about the murders of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. So stay tuned for that and read along if you'd like. Absolutely. And just throwing it out there, I haven't chosen my next book for after that. If anybody has suggestions, Mm -hmm. throw it out there. Shoot us an email. Whatever. Let me know. What do you want to hear? Yeah, yeah. Remember to drink wine. 
because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Bye. Bye.